chapter 7, Exitos de Oro. The meat boat left two days later from the quarantine dock, its brooding, over-decorated reptilian bulk almost filling the ancient channel. It was lying low in the water, giving the impression that it had just fed well. In common with the others, Paul Mink had to steady himself against the smell from the holds. He held a huge nosegay of mint and rosemary to his hidden features, while the strength of the perfume sprayed about by Major Moira was equally hard to stomach. Yasmin Shah contented herself with her fan and some smelling salts. She seemed lost in her own small fantasy. They were led aboard by an obsequious whitey, tattooed with the machinois livery. The extravagantly furnished passenger quarters were clearly designed for the unwholesome comforts of the machinois. It was a great honour, Sam Oakenhurst told them. The majority of quarters reserved for the machinois were less comfortable, and there were quarters for the blanky slaves much closer to the meat. He and the Rose stood together in the centre of Paul Mink's cabin while the huge creature prowled about the edges, the nosegay still pressed to his beaded veil, inspecting the peculiar cups and little needles placed everywhere for a guest's casual convenience. Sam Oakenhurst reached down to a tiny table and picked up one of the razor-edged shot glasses. He gently touched it to the back of his wrist. These colours are so muted, declared the rose. So gorgeous. So rich. As no one doubts the machinoir ain't rich, Mrs. Von Beck, chuckled Yasmin Shah, crowding in with Major Moira to admire the vast chamber. As Croesus, they say. Could buy and sell the Republic of Texas even in my day, Major Moira agreed. But they don't mess with human politics much. Ain't that so, Mr. Oakenhurst? That's so, Major. Built for a giant and furnished for dwarves, mused Yasmin Shah, making her own tour. The atmosphere was one of general bonhomie, as the would-be murderers saw their endgame laid out, already won. Their adversary's confidence would be useful to them, Sam Oakenhurst decided, and later in their own cabin, Rose Von Beck told him she had decided the same. Their eagerness and anticipation can become our weapon, but it is three days to Biloxi. When will he strike, do you think? Sam Oakenhurst made a lazy gesture. He thought it would not be immediately. For the first time, he was calmly ready for death. He did not much care how he died. He also knew that he could not accept death while his obligation to the Rose remained. He must make himself worthy of her. She detected a certain heaviness in his manner. He assured her that he had never been on better form. While the blankie, smelling strongly of meat, prepared their bed, Sam Oakenhurst said aloud, If Paul Mink hopes to seduce Whiteys to his course, he cannot know the Machinois. This fellow and his kind are as loyal to their masters as anyone can be. Disobedience or treachery is inconceivable to them. They would be disgusted and terrified if it was suggested. The Namashi Noir never put their own to work on the meat boats. They trust their Whiteys absolutely. There is no reason why they should not. 
Poor Mink must have some understanding of this. Does he think he can force them to divert the boat and sail into the fault? The Rose shook her head. Whether or not he plans to enter the fault, he is without a doubt planning to trap us. He cannot see how we can escape and is happy to take his time. Yet why should he go to such lengths to kill you, Rose? He must be certain. And it is in his nature to make such plots. He knows that I have pursued him through the myriad branches of the multiverse and that I am of the just. I must put an end to him if I can. Betrayal is a sophisticated and legitimate art, which he practices merely for the pleasure it gives him. But he has another ambition I cannot fathom as yet. What did he do to you that you must punish him? Sam Oakenhurst asked. He educated me to betray myself and thus to betray my people. She spoke softly, economically, as if she could not trust her voice for long. The story I gave at Brown's was true. In these other stories, are they true? What we saw at Poker Flats? Myths, she said. True enough, they describe the truth. And what does poor Mink describe? Only lies, Sam. With hideous dignity, the whitey bowed and left the cabin. Chapter 8. Mon bon vieux Marie. We were called the daughters of the garden, the daughters of the just, she told him. We reproduced ourselves by the occasional effort of will. We understood the principles of self-similarity. I suppose you could call it an instinct. There is no particular miracle in being as we were part flora, part mammal. Such syntheses are common to the worlds I usually inhabit. Paul Minks made me cross so many scales and forget so many lives to reach him. The stories are always a little different, but this time I think we shall achieve some kind of resolution. Surely we are something more than mere echoes. Yet even as he said this, Sam Oakenhurst felt oppression lifting from him, and a rare peace replacing it. In combination with what the Machinois had given him, he found still more strength. He had reached a kind of equilibrium, and at that moment nothing was puzzling. But was this merely an illusion of control? What she had told him should have dismayed him. Had her madness completely absorbed him? Our science was the science of equity, she continued. We were the natural enemies of all tyrannies, no matter how well disguised. Our world occupied a universe of flowers. Blossoms and leaves were woven between blooms the size of planets. Poor Minked allied himself with a devolved race whom we knew as the Bab-Bab, and these he ultimately unleashed upon our world. Just before he committed that crime, he was my lover and I taught him all our secrets. And your sisters? Our whole universe was raped, and I am the last of it. Until then, Sam Oakenhurst had been unable to imagine a burden greater than his own. Chapter 9. Dance le soir de la ville. We are playing charades, do you see? Poor Mink's mask glittered with a kind of merriment. Major Moira is in the part of little Fanny Fun, 
while manly Mark Mayall is played by our own dashing Yasmin Shah. But who shall play the rival? Who shall play handsome Harry Ho-Ho? You know this one, Mr. Oakenhurst, I'm sure. Those tales no longer fascinate me, Mr. Minked. Sam Oakenhurst stood just within the cabin door. The three would-be murderers had pushed away furniture and draperies and made a stage of a broad ebony table, its legs carved with a catalogue of machinois delights. It was on this that the two performed while their superior applauded from an asymmetrical couch he had made comfortable with the sanctuary's afterlife cushions. This is disrespectful to your hosts. Ah, oh, Mr. Oakenhurst, we shall not be going back to New Orleans. We're on our way to the fault to find the Holy Grail, remember? Major Moira bawled in open contempt and unhitched her gaudy skirts. The rose stepped up, anxious to end this. Crude entertainment for a mind such as yours, poor Minx, or is this merely a leitmotif? You are too judgmental, Mrs. Von Beck. Poor Minx turned his glaring mask this way and that as if he could barely see through the holes. You must be more flexible. Only flexibility will enable you to solve the perils of the fault. Come now, join our little time passer. Choose a character of your own. Pearl Peru? The Spammer Game? Corporal Pork? Carl Capital? I have nothing further to take from this, said Sam Oakenhurst, and nothing to put in. Play on cards and don't mind me. Well, play for the hell of it, then. Yasmin Shah sprawled her pointed legs over the table. Play. What else is there to do, Mr. Oakenhurst? Her yellow eyes were sluggish with guilty appetites. His anticipated death was making her salivate. Taste something fresh. The killing ritual was beginning, and so they sat obediently until they were called, and Mr. Oakenhurst was a somewhat wooden, hairy ho-ho, while the rose became Pearl Peru to the, to the life, telling the first tale of the spam again and how her fishlings were stolen. Enough to distract Paul Minked a little and make him clap his pale hands together. You are a natural actress, Mrs. Von Beck. You missed your vocation. I think not, she said. The pards, we've proved ourselves easy sports, announced Sam Oakenhurst, but now we must come to business. We are here to discuss the part of our plan where we take over the meat boat. Are the whiteys bribed yet? Mr. Oakenhurst again found himself speaking from impulse. His tone was sufficient to let the unmascarado know that Sam Oakenhurst was making a call. Not yet, said Paul Minked easily. There's time enough, Mr. Oakenhurst. Let us relax. We no longer accept you as our director. The rose swung down from the table as Paul Minked, gloating in a supposed small victory, displayed his surprise. But he recovered quickly. He is a better game than I anticipated. Mr. Minked calmed his two shadows with a casual hand. They were both thoroughly alarmed. Evidently, they had not considered a play made at the opponent's convenience. Caged light, fluttering in the woven flambeau, cast the only movement on Mr. Minked now. His body was as still as stone, as if he hoped to stop time. This is not like you, Mr. Oakenhurst, the rose was amused. Not like me at all, he turned to address the enmascarado. A surprise play, eh, Mr. Minked? 
eyes moved like quick reptiles behind the mask. The curtain over the mouth rattled. Just so, Mr. Oakenhurst. Sam Oakenhurst hardly knew what to do next. He felt a rush of elation. He was in control of his terrors. Chapter 10. Aima et Pedre. It had never been in Sam Oakenhurst's nature to decide the first move. Paul Mink had relied on that knowledge, while certain the Rose would not make a play before Mr. Oakenhurst. But now, equally unpredictably, Paul Mink produced the little OK9 he had once recommended to Mrs. Von Beck, and he took a step back to cover them both. Well, this is not my style either, as you know, but I'm willing to change if you are. That's the basis of a relationship, as I tell my wife. No wands now, Mrs. Von Beck. This beam is wide, and I will resort to brute murder if I must. I have a vocation to fulfil. An oath. Ah, exclaimed the Rose in surprise. This one has a conscience. I had such hopes for your death, Mrs. Von Beck. Mr. Oakenhurst would have appreciated what I made of you. We have a little time before we prepare the sacrifice. Not much, but we must use the best of what God sends us. He signalled to Major Moira and Yasmin Shah, and then suddenly he was still again as if stabbed. That is the man, said Sam Oakenhurst to the machinoir. He is not my friend. He watched incuriously as one oddly jointed, dueled hand closed over Paul Mink's wrist and squeezed the gun free, while fingers felt through the beads deep into Paul Mink's mouth and throat. Rose von Beck looked away from Paul Mink and, with swift thorn, brought Major Moira and Yasmin Shah merciful deaths. In the last moments the game had been unpleasantly easy, as often happens in a spontaneous end move. When the Rose looked back, she saw that Paul Mink had been returned to his seat. He was not dead, but his cold eyes begged for her mercy. The rest of him had been expertly snapped here and there. He was little more than a heap of broken bones, but he would live indefinitely. Mr. Oakenhurst bowed low before his invisible kin. The voice which came from the folds of drapery behind the table was musical, but oddly diffident. We shall put these two with the other meat. There was a long pause then. The broken one is yours, if you wish. Thank you, said the Rose. No thankings, no, said the machinoir, not need. I am the same. Same you, you. In the following silence, the Rose said, Where has she gone? To rest, Sam Oakenhurst told her. She has used up pretty much all her strength for a year. What will you do with him? Well, eventually I must kill him. I have that much compassion left but it will take me a while to find the necessary resolution. Sam Oakenhurst stepped aside to let the whiteys drag the corpses off. Nature resists linearity. Why didn't you understand that, Paul Minked? What was your plan? What did you intend to sacrifice, and to whom? Approaching the couch, he reached to Paul Minked's head and touched it in a certain way allowing the lips to move. The meat was for the fault. His suffering made Paul Mink obedient now. 
The fault is a sentient creature. Five times I fed it. This sixth time was to bring me my reward, for I would be sacrificing the rose, my mortal enemy, body and soul. And what rarer sacrifice, the rose is both the last and the first of her kind. Then I should have been permitted to sail through the golden branches into the great cup and know my whole power. You must tell me the truth, she said. It will make me more merciful. How did you plan to take over the boat? I placed no faith in bribes or whitey revolt. I simply made adjustments to the steering gear. That is why the boat is now on inevitable course for the fault under full sail. We shall keep our original bargain, ma'am. But you never did confront me, Sam, not really. Mr. Oakenhurst silenced Paul Mink's mouth. The man's bravery was more impressive than his judgment. We are to be sacrifices still. I think not, eh, Mrs. Von Beek? The rose frowned at him. It is either the fault or drown. Have you no curiosity, Sam? There are innocent lives in this. They will not die, Sam. That's merely a conception of the singularity. You have already discovered the benefits of mutability. The fault will either translate us or reject us, but it will not kill us. And as every chance will remain together, we must have the will for it and the courage to follow our instincts. I must return to New Orleans, said Mr. Oakenhurst. There's a debt outstanding. He looked with hatred into Paul Mink's agonised eyes. Again he began to doubt his judgment. What good had his decisions been? Now they were heading helplessly into the Biloxi fault. He turned to ask her how much time she thought they had when the Whitey's bosun shuffled down the companionway and crossed to the door, kneeling with bowed head before Sam Oakenhurst and the Rose and not speaking until Mr. Oakenhurst gave permission. Respectfully, Master, our meatball is about to be a swallowed by the Biloxi fault. Remember, she called, as she followed him up the narrow ladders towards the bridge, it is only a matter of scale and experience. You are not a fraction of the whole, you are a version of the whole. Time will seem to eddy and stall. This is a scale. Everything is sentient, but scale alters perception. The time of a tree is not your time. It was as if she shouted to him all she had meant to teach him before this moment. To the snail, the foot which comes down from nowhere and crushes him is as natural a disaster as a hurricane. It cannot be appealed to, and it is impossible to anticipate. The time of a star is not our time. Equity is the natural condition of the multiverse. There are things to fear in the colour fields, but not the fields themselves. Remember, Sam, we are God in miniature. Well, now he was on the top deck heading for the bridge. The vast black sails bulged overhead as the freak winds took them rapidly towards the fault, faster than ever poor Mink had planned. The massive presence of the Biloxi fault filled their horizon, all bruised colours and sharded light, yelping and gulping the ruins of star systems and galaxies as the meat boat sailed inexorably towards the lava-red glow of Ketchup Cove. I will remember all your lessons. He took the wheel from the terrified Whitey, but it would not respond to his straining movements. The boat dipped and rose in a sudden tide, 
while the wind threatened to tear the sheets from her masts. Help me, he said as the whitey ran below. She came towards him. Then something soft had battered the meat boat into the middle of the bloody, blossoming field. Yet the vessel maintained her original momentum, travelling steadily under, stale, under sail. They could see nothing but the surrounding scarlet. When they spoke, their voices were unfamiliar and used new, but coherent languages. Sam Oakenhurst felt his stomach peeling open, his entire flesh and bones skinless to the flame. He fell backwards. He tried to look up beyond the sails and saw something moving against the scarlet. A huge owl. He shuddered. Now the rose had her hands upon the useless wheel. Mammalian only in broad outline, and she appeared to curl her limbs and cast roots into the steering machinery, as if seeking the whereabouts of Paul Mink's tamperings. Her scent enraptured him. It was thicker than smoke. Something vicious and insistent threatened nearby and was dangerous, some version of Paul Mink. The rose pulled mightily on the wheel, and this time the meat boat responded, gliding into a sudden field of blue, populated with the black silhouettes of mountains shifting constantly in perspective, and then descending into a maelstrom of purple and white, soaring into field upon field of the vast spectrum, turning and wheeling until Sam Oakenhurst had to take his eyes from her to lean over the side and throw up into an infinity of lemon-yellow spheres and witness his own vomit becoming another universe in which uncountable souls would live, suffer and die until the end of time, while the sounds that he made would eventually be interpreted by them as evidence of a guiding principle. The Rose was laughing. Sam Oakenhurst had never seen a creature so filled with joy, with the rage of risk and skill which marked the greatest Yugadors. He had never known a creature so daring, so wise, and it seemed to him that some new strength bound him to her through all the colour-flooded fields of the multiverse, and then she began to sing. The beauty of her song was almost unbearable. At once he started to weep, and his tears were blinding quicksilver. It was as if she had summoned a wind, and the wind was her voice calling to him. Look up, Sam, there beyond the colour fields. It's the grail, Sam. It's the great grail itself. But when, his eyes now clear of tears, Sam Oakenhurst looked up, all he saw was a lattice of light, like roots and branches, twisting around them on every side. A kind of nest made of curled gold and silver rays. And through this, with happy ease, the rose steered the Machinois meat boat. Her hair was wild around her head like flames. Her limbs a haze of petals and brambles, and her song seemed to fill the multiverse. The meat boat was a fat, brazen lizard crawling over the surfaces of the vast fields, following the complex river systems which united them, replenished them, blending with new multi-hued mercury fractures running through a million dimensions and remaking themselves, fold upon fold, scale upon scale until they merged again with the great main trunks, ancient beyond calculation where, legend insisted, they would find the final scale and return as was their destiny, to their original being, reunited with their archetype, 
no longer echoes. And this shall be called the time of conference, said the rose, bringing the meat boat down into a clover field of white and green. The time of reckoning, that same is the fate of the just. He had managed to reach her and now sat at her feet with his arms around the stem of the wheel. He watched her as a new force took hold of the boat. A sudden stench came up from the holds as if something had ruptured. She struggled with the wheel. He tried to help her. She sang to whatever elements would hear her, but she was suddenly powerless. She shook her head and gestured for him to relax. There was nothing more they could do. We can't go any further now, Sam, she said. We're not ready, I guess. Not you yet. No, 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 the offering first. Turning with sudden recollection, they saw oddly shaped, jeweled hands disappearing below. How long had the Machinois been with them? She must be close to death, said Sam Oakenhurst. Can you help her? asked the Rose. It was only then that they saw the shapeless ruin of Paul Minked its upturned mask a blazing battleground of brands, its eyes enlivened at last with the fires of hell. The rose made a movement with swift thorn. There came a jolt like a mild shockwave. Sam Oakenhurst felt water wash up his legs and reach his back. He heard the sound of a tide as it retreated from the shore and he smelled the salt, the oily air of the coast. He opened his eyes. The boat was gone. Eventually, his vision adjusted. He understood what had happened. He lay on his side in the water as if left there by a wave. A little above him, on the beach, the rose was calling his name. Sam, the fault has taken the meat boat. Maybe Paul Mink achieved his ambition. Away in the distance were the tranquil skies which marked the Biloxi fault. Mr. Oakenhurst turned onto his back. He began to get to his feet. He shuddered at the state of his clothing and was glad there were no witnesses to their coming ashore. The rose appeared unaffected by their adventure. Taking his hand, she waded briskly through the shallows and brought them up to the tufted dunes. A light wind blew the sand in rivulets through the grass. The meat boat was accepted and we were not. Whose sacrifice... She pointed, see, we have Biloxi that way, New Orleans the other. We shall go to the terminal, Sam, I have a purpose there. I cannot go there yet, he told her. I must go to New Orleans. Is it too much for me to learn? Too much that is novel and incomprehensible? Ah, no, Sam, you already know it in your bones. Come to the Biloxi, my brave. Later, maybe, you go to New Orleans, when I can come with you. Standing there against the yellow dunes, her hair still wild, a red haze in the wind, human in form but radiating the quintessence of the rose with all its exquisite beauty, Mrs. Von Beck made no indirect attempt to persuade him, either by gesture or word, and for that, he loved her without reserve. You must go alone to Biloxi, he said. There is a price for our salvation, and I return to New Orleans to pay it. Oh, don't go, Sam. Clearly she found this request almost distasteful, though she had to make it. 
Are you sure there is nothing more to this than your own addiction? On my honour, I swore to help you. On my honour, I must keep my bargain with those who helped me fulfil that pledge to you. She accepted this in silence, but it seemed to him that he had wounded her or that she disbelieved him. He said more softly, I will meet you at the terminal. It is not my life I owe them, but my respect. I must acknowledge their sacrifice. Courageously, they defied their most powerful taboos to do what I asked of them. And here we are, Rose, alive thanks to their courage. And ours, Sam. I would return with you now, but I too am bound to a promise. If I lived after my business with Mr. Minked, I said I would deliver a message to Mr. Jack Karakwazian at the Terminal Cafe. So I must make my way there, and yes, I will wait for you, Sam. At least until the boredom grows intolerable, she smiled. Then I will come and find you. Yes, I will meet you again, whenever our luck will have it so. Then I hope you will want to come with me beyond the colour fields, beyond the universe known as the Grail, to the wonders of the second ether where plurality forever holds sway. There you will discover what it is to be Yugadors and Paramours, what it is to be alive. There's more than me in this for you, Sam. Her lips released a sigh. Well, he said, I think you will not forget me, Rose. You know who I am. By and large, Sam, she turned away. As he put the rose, the ocean, and the dunes at his back and took the broken old road up towards Louisiana, her voice returned to him on the wind. My romance, nouvelle romance, ma romancier, moi necromancier, ma histoire, moi histoire nouvelle. Jolly boys, I'll dance, jolly boys, I'll dance. Sing for me, ole, ole. But they shall not have my view carré. Jolie garçon sans merci. Pauvre Piero, mon vieux, mon brave. Petit Piero, mon suis sauvage. Le monde est faux. El mundo c'est moi. There was to be a final miracle. It seemed to him that the distant yell of the Biloxi fault took fresh harmonics from the Rose's song and amplified and modified it until for a while a vast unearthly orchestra played the old tune, told the old story of lies and truth, of betrayals and sacrifices, of quests and oaths, of love and loss and resolutions that are not always tragic. The old story, which is echoed by our own. <laughs>